and we are live. President Biden, who has never held a private sector job, has decided he'd like to completely remake the American auto industry by making tailpipe emissions on regular gas-powered vehicles impossible to achieve, forcing nearly everyone into electric vehicles in just nine years. Just how fast does Joe Biden want to break America's electric grid? Elon Musk might be happy about that news, but he made his own news this week by humiliating the BBC in an interview that did not go quite as the newsreader had planned. If you value free speech, you should be glad that Musk is on that side. And California has set up a reparations task force that will give all African-Americans in the state a lump sum of $5 million. And the mastermind of that idea says it's a blueprint for America. Really? Okay, well, we'll try to keep our cool about all this on episode 393 of the In The Tank podcast. My name is Jim Lakely. I'm the vice president of the Heartland Institute, and welcome to the latest edition of the In the Tank podcast. Your usual host, Donald Kendall, is not here today. He should be back next week, but he is absent for a very good reason. He just had a, a new baby boy named Charlie. Congratulations, Donnie. I know you're either watching this live or you'll catch it later. So uh, glad we're going to be happy to have you back. But uh, what a joyous reason to be absent from the show. But with us today, we have two fantastic panelists and our usual uh, person in the podcast is usually Donnie hosting and me hosting is a lot harder. So we should all appreciate Donnie a lot more. Uh, and that person is Chris Talgo, the editorial director at the Heartland Institute. How are you today? Good, sir. Doing good. And uh, congratulations, Donnie. And I think this is pretty cool. The uh, Donnie's second uh, boy was born on Easter. So. That's right. Yeah. On Easter yeah. Sunday. So that's great. Uh, so yeah, so we have a lot to talk about. Uh, I know this topic would have been a lot of fun. Oh, Justin Haskins is also not here today. He uh, texted me this morning. He woke up with a fever and is feeling terrible. Uh, and we'd probably look even worse on our <laughs> on our live stream here on YouTube. So we absolved him from his attendance. And filling in ably is the wonderful Linnea Lucan. She's a research fellow here at the Heartland Institute specializing in energy. So it's actually great that we have her on this week. How are you today, Linnea? I'm doing great. Good to see the uh, crossover of viewership between us and our Friday show. That's right. Yep. Linnea is a regular uh, member of the Climate Change Roundtable show. So this this show, the In the Tank podcast, is uh, live streamed on, on the Stopping Socialism TV channel that the Heartland Institute has every Thursday at noon Central Time, one o'clock Eastern, and on the regular Heartland Institute channel, uh, which is easy to find. You just put Heartland Institute in the search bar. Uh, on Fridays at noon central time, 1 p.m. Eastern is our climate change roundtable. Uh, there's going to be a little overlap in the topics this week as there often are, but uh, Sterling Burnett and Anthony Watts, who are also on the climate change roundtable show, you're going to want to hear their takes on uh, this really stupid <laughs> new rule, an impossible new rule by, by the Biden administration uh, when it comes to vehicles. So um, before we get into that, um, I'm going to go through the usual spiel that Donnie does at this point in the podcast, and that's asking you to help support this show. 
The ways to do that here on YouTube is to hit that like button, subscribe to the channel if you have not done so already, and also leave comments. Uh, we get a lot of people who watch the show and leave comments and they don't agree with us. And so if you like to get into it with people that you may uh, disagree and you can have the disagreements and have uh, arguments online, there's, we know there's not uh, enough of that going on in the world, arguing <laughs> online. But anyway, uh, interacting in the comments or leaving comments actually helps the algorithm of YouTube uh, recognize the show as a good one and helps get it in front of more people. And, you know, you can also tell some friends about it, uh, about this show and the Climate Change Roundtable on uh, on Fridays. You know, I, I watch a lot of YouTube. I don't have cable TV anymore. I watch a lot of YouTube shows and a lot of the channels. I, when I started watching a lot of YouTube, the channels were recommended to me by friends. And then from those channels, I discovered other channels that I think are really informative and fun. And so, you know, tell some friends about this show and this channel. And, uh, you know, that's really the best way to spread the word about this. Um, and if you're listening to the audio version just on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, it'd be great if you could leave us a five-star rating, but also write a brief review. That also helps uh, helps the show out a lot. So we're now ready to get into our topics. Uh, and the big one being uh, the Biden administration, uh, you know, setting new mandates. This was announced I, this week. I think maybe it was Tuesday, uh, Linnea and Chris. And Chris, you just wrote uh, a piece that just was published, I think, today or last night in Red State uh, about this. And the headline is Biden demands Americans must buy electric vehicles because of climate change. Uh, and so it's, it, it mentions that this week, the Biden administration proposed a set of rules that, according to the White House, quote, could result in the electrification of 67% of new sedans, crossovers, SUVs, and light trucks, 50% of new vocational vehicles, such as buses and garbage trucks. That's going to work out great. 35% mm -hmm. of new short-haul freight tractors, and 25% of new long-haul freight tractors uh, by 2032. Um, let's see, doing math. That's nine years. That's <laughs> not a lot of time. Uh, currently, in the in the United States, or maybe it's in the world, um, only six percent of vehicles right now are electric vehicles. And to be honest, um, they're they're basically boutique luxury items for the wealthy. Uh, you know, Tesla sells a lot of a lot of vehicles. Um, you know, you you got to be pretty wealthy to own a Tesla. I know some people who own Teslas. Those are their second or third cars, maybe fourth car that they use for tooling around. And it's a big status symbol. Um, but I know, Andy, you don't have this uh, story because I didn't. it was I found it this morning to put it in the show notes. But there's a story in The Washington Post. Just let me go through this a little bit to help set the stage for uh, Chris and Linnea to speak. Um, I go, okay, I can, maybe I could leave it in the in the chat. Uh, for you. Let me just do that. I know this is really great professional hosting. This is why we need Donnie around. All right. <laughs> so uh, Biden to remake U.S. auto industry with the toughest emissions limit ever. Uh, and the reason I want to read this one is because this is a great example of the wish casting and the wishful thinking uh, of the corrupt legacy media that will cheerlead any idea, no matter how stupid it is, no matter how damaging it is, because it serves a leftist agenda. So it says here, the Biden administration announced Wednesday the, st the strictest restrictions on auto emissions ever in an ambitious and fraught bid to advance the president's climate agenda by forcing U.S. car companies to rapidly accelerate the transition to electric vehicles. 
Um, to work, this shift would demand a greater mix of electric cars and trucks available to consumers as companies have almost no choice but to manufacture more no-emissions vehicles to comply with the mandate. That could trigger a battle within the auto industry, which has been working largely in lockstep with the administration as part of an effort to speed the transition to EVs. And they also predict... Um, uh, lawsuits to stop this from happening. Uh, the story also cheers the Inflation Reduction Act, which uh, didn't re reduce inflation and wasn't designed to because it spent hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies uh, th that were made available to lower the cost of electric vehicles. Um, and the quote here from EPA Administrator Michael Regan, that's where this uh, this rule is coming from. Uh, it's limiting, uh, you know, tailpipe emissions, making them so high that uh, they cannot be achieved by a auto, man auto manufacturer unless they just make electric vehicles. Quote, the stakes cannot be higher. We must continue to act with haste and ambition to confront the climate crisis and to leave all our children a healthier and safer world. Uh Lene, I'll go to I'll go to you first uh, as your our resident energy expert. Yeah, you we worked in the oil industry. Oh boy, oh, what an evil evil thing that is. <laughs> uh, but it's it's this idea. Basically, Joe Biden has decided that he is going to run the American auto industry from the White House because you know through the back door through regulation. Because um, when you set a regulation this re this impossible to achieve, it leaves only one alternative, and that that would be electric vehicles. Well, it doesn't even leave. And tell me if my microphone is good. If you guys saw me fidgeting around like that, it was because <laughs> for some reason my computer settings were all kinds of messed up. So hopefully this is better. Um, the the point, and I I think that this is important for people to understand. This kind of regulation. Uh, it is impossible to believe that they are not, they in the administration, especially in the energy department and across all of the regulatory bodies, they are aware that what they are asking for is impossible. They do not care. The point is not that everyone drives an electric car. The point is that you do not drive at all. Right. They do not want you leaving your 15-minute city is their new thing right now. Um, they don't want you leaving your home unless you really need to. The lockdowns were something that they were just over the moon about for COVID. Uh, not that I want to get into that <laughs> and get us kicked off of YouTube, but um, the so so they they do know that it's not possible. And the point is that it's not possible. It's just like in California, you know, everyone's going to go onto their electric grid, everything is going to be electrified. The um, the trucks and regular vehicles that people drive as daily drivers are going to be phased out. And California has acknowledged that they know that this will put significant strain on the state and their resources. They do not care. That's just the beginning and end of it. Um, the really insidious part of this is that they will be able to keep saying, well, you know, if you can just make a, you know, a nice uh, internal combustion engine car that can meet our standards for tailpipe, then it'll be all fine. Why don't, you know, manufacturers just do that? Yeah. And people who aren't in the know, you know, the New York Times will uncritically repeat that. BBC will uncritically repeat that. All of the, you know, state media will repeat it. And the average person who still trusts those agencies um, 
aren't going to really have the right tools to be able to point the right finger at the right culprit for what's really going on here. And I just find it disgusting. I mean, we used to, you know, in the Tea Party types and stuff, we used to make fun of the Obama administration for going after light bulbs. And uh, I remember when I was in high school, that was the big, the biggest thing um, was the incandescent light bulb getting phased out. Uh, and Biden just did new regulation on that. I didn't uh, yep, read did. too detailed into it, but he's after the light bulbs again. So this isn't, they're not really worried about, you know, emissions and energy use from this kind of thing. Um, this is all about just having a managed economy. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly right. I mean, you know, this is where, you know, you know, the, the, I think two of the most dangerous were this, this was a popular phrase uh, for the last 20 years, maybe less so now, public-private partnership. When you get government, um, basically, these, you would expect the industry to push back. Uh, you would expect Ford Motor Company to say, no, this is, this is not right. We're going to sue. You can't do this. And to actually engage in a public communications campaign to tell people that we already have the cleanest cars on earth. They are way, way cleaner than they were 20 years ago. They are infinitely cleaner than they were um, in the 1970s and 80s. And that this, this pursuit by the EPA to get every last particle out of the air you know, the, the cost is we're already so clean that the cost to get, we have to be cleaner. You have to be cleaner. The costs are like this and the benefit is like this, but they know this. There's studies. They know that this is the case. And as you said, Linnea, they don't care because that's not the point. The point is to control your life. Uh, I saw our friend, Steve Malloy, who's a board member here at the Heartland Institute and the publisher of junkscience.com. Uh, I saw his tweet this morning. And he says he links to actually a great piece in the Wall Street Journal, which I might uh, read a little bit from as well. Uh, he says, see if you can spot the problem with Joe Biden's coming EV mandate. One, EVs require two and a half times as much copper as conventional cars. Two, the U.S. once had more than a dozen copper smelters, and now it has just two. And three, 47 percent of copper is smelted in China. And I responded, hey, that's no problem at all, Steve. The Biden administration and the eco-left want to end affordable personal transportations. The, the elites will still have it, of course, but just not ordinary people. Uh, Chris, as I as I mentioned, you wrote a piece in uh, Red State. You're all over this topic. Um, that's why I'm so glad we're, uh, we have you on the pod and we're talking about this today. Um, why don't you talk about your, your take on this uh, on this on this uh, new rule? Yeah, well, first, I, I agree with Linnea's um uh, analysis that really what one of the things that this is about is is uh, an attack on uh, the American car and car culture and American cars and car culture goes you know way back to the you know 1920s 1930s 1940s when people started to have the ability to you know move away from cities live out in suburbs they could you know traverse the country they could go wherever they want whenever they want the gasoline powered car is the is, is the embodiment of American freedom and electric vehicles are the antithesis of American freedom because they are super expensive. They're about 66000 on average, whereas the average price of a new gasoline-powered car is uh, mid-20s, so $40,000 more expensive. And they have uh, all sorts of issues that have not been uh, figured out yet, like the, the range issue. Uh, the batteries are still not uh, reliable. They're not dependable. And when the uh, batteries do go out, the batteries cost $40,000 to replace. So once the battery's out, you're done. Unlike a car where, you know, if a, uh, a part goes wrong, you can take it to your mechanic and they can fix it. So there's all sorts of problems. This is not ready for prime time yet. 
But once again, I think this is uh, emblematic of our elites on the bi-coast, our bi-coastal elites who think this is the way that, you know, that the country should be run. Uh, people in, you know, the flyover country, they don't need to have the ability to, to you know, drive vast distances. What do they need to, to, to you know, go outside of their, uh, you know, little little town for? So to me, this is just like Linnea said, and Jim, you know, you've made this comment many times as well, that this is about control. And if you can limit people's ability to move around the country, to literally transport themselves, then you definitely have a lot of control over people. So that's yeah. just, you know, that's just one aspect of it. But there's I think that there's, you know, many, many more that need to be uh, considered, too. Yeah. I mean, uh, James Taylor, our president, we, we I have to put it on the website, actually, after this podcast, but we issued a statement and uh, James Taylor called it the break America's grid rule, which I thought was uh, was great because, look, we the, the idea, again, you have to think, have they thought this through? Um, and because this is madness, this is going to break our grid. Um you, you have to come to the conclusion that they're not stupid, that they, they actually know this and they don't care or breaking our grid is the point. You know, I mean, putting uh, putting in policies to make people get into electric vehicles while our, our electric grid is already strained. Uh, that's unscientific. It's, an, it's insane. And this is while they're shutting down coal and natural gas plants and they're mandating more wind and solar, which is unreliable and doesn't have enough power for a modern society. Oh, and let's not forget, they're also uh, opposed in every case of building more nuclear power plants. So if you were serious about electrification, which is a terrible idea because it's too expensive, natural gas is great. Um, if you have a if you have natural gas in your home, stay in it because a lot of states are banning new natural gas hookups these days. So yeah, there's no natural gas ban, guys, but this is happening in states across the country. Well, another, another, another thing is I read the White House fact sheet is that they claim that this is going to save Americans $12,000 because it's going to reduce our... Um, our uh, dependence on foreign oil. Well, two things on that. First of all, we shouldn't be dependent on foreign oil nope. because last time I checked a couple of years ago, we were energy de you know, independent. We were energy dominant. We were actually a net exporter of oil for the first time since uh, World War II. So that that you know line of uh, you know of reasoning is is moot. It's null and void. And then second of all, they they uh, claim that this will reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions, but it won't because the uh, the the, the grid is going to be needed to charge these cars. And last time I checked the grid and, you know, the, as much as they wish it were, uh, you know, mostly dependent on uh, wind and solar, it's not, and it's never going to be because there is just not enough wind and solar to power the grid for us to live. Like we have been living in the 21st century. So the, the like on, on all the, the, the ways that they're trying to justify this, it falls flat. So it just yeah. makes me wonder, like, yeah, like, what is their real agenda here? And I think their real agenda is control, control, control. Yeah. I mean, we, we had our energy grid can barely handle the gradual um, shutting down of reliable energy across the country as it is. I mean, Texas, obviously, last uh, the, the, the great the, almost the entire state of Texas was in blackout because they were too dependent on wind. Um, you know, this is like it, Linnea, we just our energy system can't handle it. I mean, if if, if you took. If they really want 67% of all new cars sold by tw in nine years are going to be electric plug-ins, if that yeah. was even possible, if it was even going to happen, um, if you were to replace all of these regular gas-powered cars, I just want to call them cars. EVs should be called something else uh, because people <laughs> keep thinking that they're the same thing and they're not. But if we if we actually did that, if we, if we went to 67% of all new cars were electric, our grid would collapse. It would collapse long before we ever got to that 67% number. 
Well, yeah, and that's assuming that we actually have the materials necessary to build that many EVs in the first place. Yep. I think that the United States on a on a per capita basis owns more cars than any other country on the planet. I don't mm-hmm. think that that would be a huge I haven't actually looked into that, but I w- I don't think that, that would be a big stretch to estimate. Um and as you were saying earlier and with Chris's article, um, that kind of transportation freedom, especially in a continent as large as the United States and in a country where so many people are able to live extremely remote, okay, and a lot of people do. Um, you know, I live not extreme, I wouldn't call it extremely remote, but I live on an island. So when my, you know, when the electricity goes out or if a bridge goes out, there's no getting out of here. So that kind of sucks. But imagine, I mean, just imagine living in one of the uh, more distant parts of Manhattan and having an emergency like a hurricane coming mm-hmm. and everyone's in EVs. When I lived in South Louisiana, they shut the electricity down in advance of a hurricane making landfall because they didn't want power lines dangling in the water. Right. This is uh, all electric is death. That's it. And these sadistic freaks in California are working on banning things like independently owned diesel generators. They are not happy with you being able to um, provide for yourself. You know, you can put solar on your roof, but that's not going to work in a snowstorm. And they know it. We had an email from a viewer a couple of weeks ago who said that um, where they live in the Sierra Nevadas, their local commission or the um, California State Air Quality Commission is asking them to ban natural gas heaters in their homes up in the Sierras. What does that mean for someone who gets snowed in when the electricity goes out? I mean, they know full well that the grid cannot handle this stuff. And not only that, but they're trying to get rid of the way that you can get around the, the electric grid going down. It mm-hmm. is insane to me. I, I, it's really hard, you know, as someone who wants to think the best of people to wrap my mind around the idea that they can fully know the impacts of these policies and go ahead with them anyway. Yeah. I mean, I I lived in California. I moved out of California in 2010, escaped, I should say, when they still had uh, (laughs) U-Hauls to be had. But uh, back then they started banning new, you couldn't put uh, wood stoves or fireplaces in any new construction. So imagine you're in a, you're in, like I said, record snowfall. People were snowed in. I have a friend who lives in the mountains in, uh, in Southern California. And he would send me pictures that you couldn't believe how big the snow was. It was like the Donner pass or something, but you know, uh, <laughs> but if you don't have a wood stove and the electricity goes out for days, you die. That's it. There's, I mean, you, you, you're basically putting on snowshoes and fighting for your life. Well, Jim, but another thing they've done in California is they've said that they're going to ban, they're going to outlaw the sale of new gasoline-powered cars in the you know not too distant future. So I yeah. think this is the this is the federal government and these crazy left-wing states, you know, getting together, colluding, and saying, "What do we want? We want people not to buy uh, gasoline-powered cars because you know we think they're bad for the environment." Even though I don't really think they think that, and we just once again want to keep people as you know as. Uh, restricted as possible. So this is this is the way to do that. And I think that this is, you know, just the beginning of, of the uh, calls for the end of the gasoline powered car. And I'll tell you one thing, yeah. I'm going to fight tooth and nail because I will not buy an electric car just because the government says you have to buy an electric car. I'm not yeah, going to do well, it. 
Well, I guess our used cars will go up in value if there's any you know, silver lining to this very, very dark cloud. Um, before we get off this topic, I, speaking of California, and I think it's important to, to think about the mining that is involved in uh, in, in creating an electric vehicle. It's one of the reasons why it's so expensive. Um, I think we should start calling them slave vehicles because these are without slave labor, child labor in uh, the Congo, in Africa, without uh, slave labor in China. Um, these, these cars uh, cannot be made. There's a piece in the Wall Street Journal um, in this morning's paper, but it was posted last night. Net zero will mean a mining boom. And uh, it mentions, Chris, that California made a stunning decision last year that by 2035, all new cars sold in the state must have at least two and a half times as much copper as conventional cars do today. That's not literally what the mandate said, of course, but it's a practical effect. Again, Linnea, the people don't think about these things, or at least the policymakers don't seem to think about these things. But it's the practical effect of ordering all cars to be electric in the next 10 years. The drive toward energy transition will increase demand for lithium, cobalt, and other minerals many times over. And an offshore wind project uses nine times the minerals of a natural gas-fired uh, power plant generating the same capacity. Um, it mentions here that just doing copper, let's forget about lithium and the other stuff. And this is what Steve Malloy mentioned in his tweet. World copper production is highly concentrated geographically, more so than oil production. Three countries, the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Russia, produce 40% of the world's crude oil supplies. Just two countries mine about 40% of the world's copper, Peru, where the government is in disarray, and Chile, whose government is struggling between its populist agenda and the need for economic growth. And the, the point that this uh, author is making, um, Daniel Jurgen, is that you know when, when you need the copper and you need the, the lithium and you need uh, the cobalt from unstable uh, places, it makes it it's a huge problem, which means these cars actually we don't we don't have the, the, the mining capacity uh, to make these cars to get the minerals for these cars anyway. Um, he says that developing a major new mine takes 15 to 20 years or more to even come online. So even if we were able to find the minerals that we need, the, the our ability to get it out of the ground at scale, at the scale that this is that our our, our government bureaucrats are demanding we meet, it's not possible, Linnea. We, I mean, it, we, we, even if we could find it, actually, I think there's not even enough uh, cobalt and lithium and copper in the world to convert all of our uh, gasoline-powered cars into, into electric vehicles. But, you know, just if we were to start right now, a, a moonshot for getting more uh, minerals out of the ground, it would still take more than a decade and maybe two. Well, I mean, the government could always loosen up on some mining regulations. How likely do you think they're going to be on, on doing that? Yeah, and the environmental think... left could 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 not file lawsuits too, right? Yeah, and, every time and hell could freeze over, Linnea. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, I don't I don't think it's overly likely. And um, I think there was a study done several years ago that showed that with and let's be clear that it's known reserves. So with known reserves of um, lithium and some other materials, we do not have enough to give every person in the UK an electric car. So I would love to know how that would work here. But like I said, the point is not to have everyone drive an electric car. The point is to have most people not drive at all. 100%. So, um, and, they're, and they're fully aware of that goal. And they'll even talk about it, you know, or at least the college professors who know that really no one's watching them will talk about it in those terms. Um, as I've said, I think um, a while back, I don't remember if it was on In the Tank or on our Friday show, um, 
I have read on engineering forums, there has been a shift in the way that these, you know, even civil engineers and people who are uh, working in energy, various energy production industries, including nuclear, that they don't think that the renewables and their inability to generate enough electricity is the problem. They think that how much electricity we need is the problem. Hmm, they intend exactly. to decline our demand for electricity, not to match what we need now. Yeah, Chris, I mean, like I said, they, these these people aren't dumb. I mean, they can read reports, they can use logic, and they just, uh, they never mention it and they skip over it because that's not their actual, they're not, they're not actually dealing in reality. The, the point is not to really get everybody to convert to electric cars. The point is to get people out of their cars for good, forever. I agree. And also they're, they're doing it through force because the, the market, it, there is no demand for it. Uh, I, I saw uh, one of the latest polls, less than 25% of Americans want to buy an EV for their next car. Less than 6% of all new vehicle sales last year were EV cars. Less than 1% of the 250 million cars that are on the road in the United States are electric. If there was an organic desire and demand for electric, the car companies would be making them because they would be making money off them. The Inflation Reduction Act, like you said, Jim, had in it a whole bunch of subsidies to try to you know, to try to help enforce people to buy these, of course, that actually helps rich people by, uh, you know, giving them subsidies because they're the ones who are buying these. And then what does the auto companies do? They jack up the prices, which is exactly what we saw as soon as the, uh, the subsidy was announced. And you know what? The car companies are still not making money on these cars. GM and Ford are losing billions of dollars because people don't want to buy these cars. How dare you? So, you know, what is what what is the response? Force them to. Don't give them a choice. Force them to. That's right. It's all about guys, force. You know that in the future, you're not going to own anything. So <laughs> I don't know why you guys are fretting about this so much. Donnie, I just feel bad for oh, little no, Charlie. I can't hear you. Can you hear me? Give me a thumbs yeah, we up can hear. you can hear me. I can hear you. Uh, Donnie, I feel bad for little Charlie because I want little Charlie. To I, yeah, I don't know. I can't hear you guys. But uh, oh, wow. here's the little one. Sammy, come here. There's a little one from a couple of years ago. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so Daddy, I just wanted I... to, you know, come on, despite the fact that, uh, you know, I'm very, very sleep deprived, just to basically stick it to Justin, who, you know, has a little bit of a fever or something like that. So I just want to, you know, make a point that I am the most dedicated out of anyone here on the on the show, with the, maybe the exception of Jim. Um <laughs> <laughs> Well, Donnie, well, you're a trooper. I just right. hope that no, that's it. I just wanted to make an appearance. And also, any world... super chats that are sent during the rest of this episode are going to go to the buying the baby diaper funds. So keep that in mind, all the listeners. Yeah. Okay. Right. I can't hear you. So thank you. I'll talk all to right. you later. Bye, bye Donnie. Goodbye there. So yeah, uh, yeah. Super chats are great. Uh, a great way to help support the program. And we will uh, dedicate that to help. Uh, not actually, I'm sure Donnie actually won't spend any super chat money on diapers. He'll spend it on um, getting a baby Yoda outfit to put little Charlie in. So he looks even cuter than baby Yoda, which he already does right now. Uh, so with that little interruption to the, uh, uh, to the podcast, uh, congratulations again, Donnie. Uh, uh, Charlie, little Charlie is just absolutely beautiful. And so uh, it just makes my heart uh, melt. Um, I think we're ready to move on to our next topic, which is 
about uh, unless uh, well, let me just ask Linnea if you have any other uh, any other points to make on this. I mean, I, I think what's actually kind of sad is that little Charlie probably, um, you know, I, if you think about what the Biden administration is trying to do is to make sure he never has his own car. <laughs> you know, this is all about the future generations. Um, you know, I'm 52. I had a car when I was 16. Um, there are fewer and fewer kids in their teenagers in their teenage years who you know want to get that driver's license when they're 16 it, it means freedom and it meant freedom to me i was so happy for it but you know we seem to have we seem to be raising generations of kids now uh, to not think that way to think collectively and not independently i have a dream that mm -hmm. donnie's kids will be able to buy the the dirtiest diesel they want and they'll be able to roll clouds of coal on all of the Priuses in the high school parking lot, <clears throat> and it'll be terrific. <laughs> okay, that is a good dream. I share that dream. <laughs> yes, as should, as should we all. But yeah, I mean, so so we'll keep an eye on this. Uh, be sure to tune in tomorrow at the Heartland Institute's main channel uh, for Climate Change Roundtable. Linnea and Anthony Watts and uh, Sterling Burnett from Heartland will all be talking about this and some other great topics uh, that I think you'll find very interesting. And they'll be a little smarter about it than me, I'm sure, because that's what they do for a living. All right. So our second topic here is going to be uh, Elon Musk. I almost want to do the whole show on this, uh, but he was interviewed. Uh, Elon Musk was interviewed by the BBC um, this week or just a few days ago. And the... Uh, where, where did that go? There it is. And so, yeah, uh, the BBC, an interviewer named James Clayton um, put him on and, and uh, they had a nice conversation. And, you know, Elon Musk was prepared. And I think the point of the interview was was twofold. One, well, actually, the, the only point of the interview was to basically corner Elon Musk and to uh, get him to admit or at least take blame for the spread of hate speech and misinformation on Twitter, which this reporter allegedly or said that was allegedly growing. Misinformation was growing since on Twitter since Elon Musk took over. That hate speech was growing since Elon Musk took over. And so I think it's good actually to play a couple of uh, a couple of clips here. So Andy, um, go ahead and play this. I think this is really interesting. Uh, the first clip they talk about misinformation and the culpability that Elon Musk apparently has for the spread of misinformation among the public on Twitter. Go ahead and play that. Do you think you prioritize freedom of, of speech over misinformation and hate speech? Well, you know, who's to say that something, something is misinformation? Um, who's the arbiter of that? Is it the BBC? Yeah, you literally, literally asking me. Yeah. Well, no, you, you, are, the, the you are the arbiter on Twitter because you own Twitter. Yes, I'm saying who, who is to say that one person's misinformation is another person's information? Um, the point at which you, you say that there is, uh, this is misinformation. Like, who is but going you, but you to decide that? you accept that misinformation can be dangerous, that it can cause real-world yes. harms, that it can potentially cause them. Um, yeah, so the point I'm trying to make is that the BBC itself has, at times, published things that are false. Do you agree that that has occurred? I, 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 I'm quite sure the BBC have uh, said things before that turn out to not be true. Correct. Uh, it, it's whatever it is, 100-year history, I'm quite sure. Yes. Even if you aspire to be accurate, there are times when it will, you, you will not be. 
Oh, the uncomfortable silences are so funny. Oh my gosh. But yeah, Chris, I mean, this is the point is that, that, that Elon Musk was trying to make and those long pauses of silence from the newsreader. Uh, he, he, he wasn't expecting to actually be asked questions or to, or to move his logic forward at all, let alone far down the line. But that's, that's the important thing is it's like, okay, so you guys say it's misinformation. Says who? We know one person's misinformation is another person's information, like Elon Musk said. And as we learned from our experience with uh, with COVID and the com government communications, um, you know, yesterday's misinformation is tomorrow's conventional wisdom. Oh, geez. I mean, you know, throughout the pandemic, we saw governments, whether it's the U.S. government or the uh, U.K. government, just say time and time and time again, things that were, you know, verifiably false at the time. And now we know for a fact that they were false. Uh, however, you know, they got away with it. Um, what, what really stood out to me there was how when Elon Musk uh, questioned the reporters, so so who is the arbiter? Who who says what isn't is not misinformation? The The reporter had nothing to say back to that. Because, you know, Jim, you and I both know that whether it's hate speech or whether it's, quote, misinformation or disinformation or male information, there is no objective standard to, to apply across the board. Free speech is free speech. Someone might say, you know what, that's hate speech or that's misinformation, but too bad. You have the ab ability to then, you know, retort against it. That's what a free speech and open dialogue is about. Whether it's, you know, about COVID, whether it's about climate change, whether it's about, you know, transgender, whatever the topic is, nothing should be beyond the pale of this. And I think what what Elon Musk did by buying Twitter and making it a truly free and open platform in which free speech is sacrosanct, that is a viable threat to the uh, mainstream media because they have been the gatekeepers mm -hmm. for so long. And they have just become they've grown so accustomed and so comfortable in that position and then all of a sudden, you know, this startup comes along and it's like, hey, you know what? It's actually going to go back to what it was originally intended to be, an open forum for people to just get on there and state their opinions. And yes, some of these opinions are wacky. Some of them are kooky. That's OK. In the United right. States of America and in, you know, around the world in free countries, you're allowed to say things that people might, you know, might think are you know crazy at times. That's what free speech is about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Linnea, when they uh, when Elon Musk asked him, basically, well, who gets to decide what what is misinformation? And then there was that long pause. Uh, and he's like, you're asking me. It's like because Elon Musk was making the point that you guys, you 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 need to take credit or blame for that for this. But, you know, it's basically the media and governments that decide what is misinformation. And instead of just letting the marketplace of ideas sort it all out. Well, we, we know that, you know, the kind of elite journalism class believes this about themselves, that they are the arbiters of truth, Jim. I right. mean, we saw um, during the Trump administration, what was it? They, oh, when they leaked the Hillary Clinton emails, there was, I it's been a while, so I don't quite remember, but there was, I think, an MSNBC reporter or anchor, and she said, the American people don't have the right to see these files. That's hmm. our job. That's right. That's We're right. the ones yeah. that are going to show them and tell them what to think about it. No, <laughs> you guys said, I mean, those, when I say you guys, I mean, the elite journalists have such a big head on their shoulders. I love my favorite thing about this whole interview was Elon not respecting them. 
he just was taking the wind out of their sails at every opportunity, cracking jokes, making them uncomfortable the entire time, just totally disrespecting them. And I think that was the right strategy to take. Um, whether or not his um, philosophy is totally thought out and totally in line with you know, like a conservative position or something, because he's not a conservative. Um, so we right. shouldn't expect that, you know, kind of um, solid politics out of him in the first place. And it's a mistake to expect it. But him kind of annihilating their sense of superiority live on air. And they yeah. know that, you know, they already had their like planned clips that they were going to take out. Because if you go on Twitter, you can see what the BBC released compared to what the um, live Twitter feed actually was. And they like cleaned it up to make it look like their anchor wasn't like utterly annihilated. By <laughs> um, so yeah, no, that was the, the right take. If you're ever interviewed by the public and Heartland's done a good job about this too, releasing uh, the behind the scenes conversations, you know, to show that these journalists are just, they're not worthy of your respect. No, they're not. I mean, journalism, I'm, I'm a former journalist. Uh, I call myself a recovering journalist. Uh, ger modern journalism is a very shabby profession, and it's populated by a lot of midwits at best, uh, mostly nitwits, who who don't, who have no idea. I remember reading a story, I think I may have been on the uh, Climate Change Roundtable with Ulena or somewhere else, but uh, maybe I just shared it in, the, in our Slack threads. But, uh, you know, a reporter said, you know, who just, I report on the climate, so I know what the truth is. It's like, no, no, you don't. Um, that's like saying, um, you know, I report on baseball, so I know how to hit a curveball. No, no, I don't. <laughs> I'm not going to miss that curveball every time just because you're a reporter. And this is back when reporters were actually in the, in the business of learning a lot about the subject, which I did as a journalist. And then, you know, in a straight, unbiased, objective way, uh, presenting the facts about what's going on, not 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 just publishing your own opinions on the news pages. We're long past that in you know, those days. I, I don't even know if I'd be able to survive um, and have a clear conscience if I was a journalist today. But uh, but Chris, you know, again, just going back to the idea of misinformation, and I thought it was brilliant that uh, Elon Musk's condition to sit to have this sit down interview was that the the thing was going to be live, uh, you know, uh, was going to be live streamed via Twitter so people could watch it for themselves. Uh, it, it's, it's really fun to watch a journalist kind of have to, um, well, you kind of have the tables turned on you that you, you have to be able to perform live and make sure everything makes sense. But again, this idea of misinformation, we, you know, we live in now in a society, this is one of the most, uh, one of the most evil words that is, that has joined our lexicon, at least as far, if you, if you believe in freedom is mis and disinformation, because as Elon Musk said, one man's misinformation is another person's information. And as we've learned over these last several years on, on some very important topics, the label of misinformation is applied by the legacy media and increasingly by governments so that you are silenced. And, and it's basically you're committing some sort of crime against society by, quote unquote, peddling misinformation. Uh, that That's why I wanted to talk about this, because that's it's dangerous. And how, how do we get this... That mindset, Elon Musk is trying, but how do we get that mindset out of the out of the minds of the people that control our culture and our media? Jeez, that is a really tough lift. I mean, I do watch a lot of news and I try my best to watch CNN, MSNBC, Fox News to all, you know, just all the networks just to get a, you know, a, a full picture of like how they're presenting the issues and the narratives. And Jim, I think what what they 
despise most about Elon Musk is that he has the ability to go outside of the uh, narrative that they are crafting and it just drives them wild and it drives them crazy because they, for many years they have had a, a near monopoly aside from Fox News on the dissemination of uh, information. And then all of a sudden, one day like that, Elon Musk buys Twitter and just turns everything on its head. Twitter, whether you like it or not, is the public discourse. It's, it's where the conversation, you know, it's, it, it, it's where it's, um, it, it begins. It's, it, it's, it, it's how ideas are spread. It's how, uh, you know, news is, you know, rapidly spread across the world. And if you have a, a free and open Twitter in which, you know, Dr. Fauci does not have carte blanche to just say, no, anyone who says anything that I don't agree with about COVID, you're done, you're out of here. Like Alex Berenson, you know, for example, it's going to be a much better, uh, you know, world that we live in because you're going to have multiple opinions. You're going to have, you know, uh, different perspectives. That's all good. It's not good to have a mono perspective and a mono narrative. And anyone who's, you know, willing to go outside of that should not be punished. They should actually be, uh, you know, celebrated. Yeah. Well, um, that actually, we can get into the second clip here too, but I, um, there's some links here in the show notes. One of them from CBN News, which is Christian Broadcasting Network. Uh, headline, new poll shows millennial support for constitutional free speech declining. Um, and this is why you see these calls for the banning of misinformation or the regulating of speech. Uh, it said this is from December uh, of this year of last year. So December 10th, 2022, a new poll shows a majority of Americans believe the First Amendment should be rewritten to, quote, reflect the cultural norms of today. Nearly 60 percent of millennials, those 21 to 38 years old, believe the Constitution, quote, goes too far in allowing hate speech in America. And 48 percent of Generation X, that's me, and 47 percent of baby boomers agreed. Uh, a majority of millennials also said hate speech should be a crime, with more than half of those saying it should carry jail time. Um, and if you look at, you can just, actually, you can just Google the words um, millennials or Gen Z free speech poll, and you'll find, you know, all sorts of polling companies conduct these polls on a pretty regular basis, and they get um, depressingly similar results across the board. So, um, this is a longer clip, but I think it's worth playing. Um, and it's about hate speech. I think this is where the BBC news reader, uh, kind of thought he would be able to really get, uh, really get Elon Musk uh, on this one because who, who could be in support of hate speech. So we could put aside the definition of what information versus misinformation is, but we're, we're really going to get, uh, Elon Musk now the, because of the fact that he allows quote unquote hate speech on Twitter, which is obviously on the rise, um, and this might be the most emotional I've ever actually seen Elon Musk get. So let's play that clip, Andy. Hateful. What do you mean to describe a hateful thing? Yeah, I mean, you know, just content that will solicit a reaction, something that may include something that is slightly racist or slightly sexist, those kinds of those kinds of things. So you think if I'm, something is slightly sexist, it should be banned? Hmm. I, no, is I'm that not, what you're saying? I'm not saying anything. I'm well, saying. I'm just curious. What you, I'm, I'm trying to understand what you mean by hateful con content, and I'm asking for specific examples. Um, and if, and you just said that if something is slightly sexist, that's hateful content. Does that mean that it should be banned? Well, you've asked me, you've asked me whether my feed, whether it's got less or more, it, I'd say it's got slightly more. That's but, why I'm asking for examples. 
Can, right. you, can you name one example? I, I honestly don't use. I, I, honestly, I you don't can't name I, a single example. I'll tell you why. Because I don't actually use that for you feed anymore. Because I, I just don't particularly like it. But you and said you, a lot of people. A lot of people are quite similar. I, I, I only. Well, I only look well, at hang my, on a second. You said you've seen more hateful content, but you can't name a single example. Not even one. I'm not sure I've used that feed for the last three or four weeks. And I. Well, I, then I how did you I, see the hateful content? content? Because I've been, I've been using, I've been using Twitter since you've taken it over for the last six months. Okay, so then you must have at some point seen the you, for you hateful content. I'm asking for one example. Right. And you I, can't I, give a single and, one. And, and, and I'm saying, I, then I, I say, sir, that you don't know what you're talking about. Really? Yes, because you can't give me a single example of hateful con content, not even one tweet, and yet you claimed that the hateful content was high. Well, that's a false. No, what I claimed. You just lied. What no? no what I claim was. Uh, there are many uh, organizations that say that that kind of information is on the rise. Now, whether whether it has on my feed or not, I mean, I, right, and <laughs> Literally you can look at something one. like the, the uh, Strategic Dialogue uh, Institute in the, U in the UK, they will say that. So they, Look, people will say all sorts of nonsense. I'm literally asking for a right. single example, and you can't name one. Right, and as, as I've already said, I don't use that feed. But let's, well, then how let, would you know? That I don't you, think you, this is getting anywhere. You literally said no, you, you better start getting anywhere for you. Content and then couldn't name a single example. Right, and as I said, I That's absurd. Yeah, so... <laughs> that trombone is appropriate for that, uh, for that comment right there, but I mean, there's so much to unpack there, and I almost, I almost wanted to stop it here and there, but I thought it was important to, 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 to play the whole thing. But again, that, that was so bad for the BBC newsreader that he was... Uh, you know, again, challenge. All right, give me an example of the hate speech. Now, I, you could, yeah, actually, you could probably. He wasn't prepared. This is what's so great about modern media. They think they're that they're never to be held accountable. They're never to actually explain their positions, explain the premises of their questions, explain the context of what they believe, because their beliefs are infected into every bit of the so-called journalism that we see out there. You could just go on Twitter, and you could probably, uh, you could just tweet a hate word. And you'd find it. You'd find a bunch of them. But he didn't even take the time to do that. He just presumed that his audience would would obviously just believe, of course, there's tons and tons and tons of hate speech on Twitter. And we'll just get uh, Elon Musk to admit that. And all Elon Musk required, Linnea, was one example, one example of hate speech so that he could address it. And maybe they could have a, a conversation about what Twitter does to combat hate speech. But Elon Musk's principle is that if speech is legal, if 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 all legal speech should be allowed on his platform, that's it. That is about as as freedom oriented. Again, he's no conservative, but that's about as freedom oriented, and as he's not American. Well, he is now, I guess. But that's about as an all American thing to do, which which is to allow speech. Because back when I was young, and I think this was a principle in America that the answer to hate speech or bad speech or speech you don't like is more speech. And that the First Amendment does not exist to protect speech that is not controversial. It exists explicitly to protect speech that others don't like. Right, exactly. Well, and, you know, and, and Twitter has gotten a lot better on that front since Elon took over. It's still pretty biased towards the left, but that's because, you know, you can't control all of their um moderators and their algorithms and stuff. Uh, for example, you know, some of the most rabid leftists on Twitter can say some pretty horrendous stuff that is like a direct threat to someone's life and the post doesn't get taken down. <laughs> but, you know, if, if a 
someone on the right was to go anywhere near something like that, it would be entire channel nuked in a second. Um, so it's still a little bit unevenly applied, but it's much better than it was, right? And actually, I think that what that journalist was referring to was were a, a series of studies that have been done by like, I don't know, Vox or Vice or something, you know, yeah. really high quality uh, journalistic outlets um, that did some kind of a keyword search looking for stuff from the ADL hate speech lists and whether or not they didn't read every tweet that they included in this list. Um, they just did a keyword search and they said, look, it's, you know, there's more than there was before. Um, pretty questionable methods. Uh, but it was, you know, the fact that the journalist didn't even do his homework enough to be able to cite any of those off the top of his head with specifics or even describe the methodology is a huge indictment. Mm. I mean, I think this guy is uh, the BBC's North America tech editor, right? Um, pretty, <laughs> that's pretty bad. You have one job, buddy. You, you get, <laughs> you know, Elon Musk doesn't give interviews all that often. Mm -mm. You get the chance to have a sit down interview with Elon Musk and you do zero homework except for just reading headlines from your friends. Right, um, right. Yeah. I mean, Chris, I mean, hey, th this organization that I like that no one's heard of, but I trust says that you're bad. And so you, now I confront that with you. It's like, again, this actually goes all the way back, not all the way back, but to the other, the idea of what's information, what's misinformation. And, you know, the idea that you could just throw, well, this, this nonprofit organization that's run by leftists and takes money from George Soros says you're bad. And so you must be banned. I mean, that, that attitude is so pervasive. Yeah. Well, hate speech and free speech cannot coexist. Because, you know, the definition of free speech is that you have the right to say anything. Yes, it might be hurtful to some people. Yes, it might be, you know, hateful to some people. But that is what living in a free country is all about. And Jim, you and I know this because we grew up in a country where there was no such thing as hate speech. Hate, hate speech and hate crimes are a new phenomenon, uh, you know, in the last uh, 25 years or so. Um, I remember because I live in uh, Northfield, Illinois, and Skokie is our, you know, five minutes away. And uh, once upon a time, Skokie, the place where the moat where a large uh, percentage of Jews uh, from the Holocaust escaped, you know, Nazi Germany and came and uh, set up, you know, a home. They allowed, they allowed a neo-Nazi march to, to occur on the streets of Skokie. And that was held uh, by a, you know, a judge because it's freedom of speech. I'm not defending neo-Nazis right to march or, you know, Ku Klux Klansmen's rights march, but they do have a right. You can't just say, no, you're not allowed to say that because we just don't want to hear it. That's that's what they do in authoritarian countries. That's what they do in the Soviet Union. That's what they did in Nazi Germany. We don't want to live in a country like that. Uh, now, granted, I'm not saying that, you know, we should go and celebrate and champion people who are, you know, saying despicable things, but we do need to at least, you know, allow the, you know, the the people to say these these kinds of things and you know once once you go down this line of uh, hate speech you know it, it it it's it's a pandora's box because then it's who's defining what isn't isn't hate speech and like yeah. Lynette said and jim i'm sure you well aware of this man i remember a whole lot of hate speech directed toward donald trump or anyone mm -hmm. you know, with, uh that you know was a you know trump aligned uh you know uh candidate or uh you know follower over the past six years so it's okay for them to say despicable things about trump and his family and you know so on and so forth 
But then it's not okay for another side to say, hey, guys, you know what? I want to, you know, say things that you might disagree with, you know, on this uh, forum. It's, well, you know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. I think it's because the left thinks they're always going to be in power. They think they'll never, um, they'll never be out of power. But I also um, think that just goes to show how insecure they are about their power because they are so adamantly opposed to anyone who wants to challenge it. And what do they do? Yeah, it's hate speech. You know, if, if you say, hey, you know, I don't think drag queens should be in, uh, you know, public schools, uh, you know, uh, with kindergartners. No, that's hate speech. You can't say that. No, actually, you know, you should be allowed to say that. So, no, and, and, and you know what? In fact, we are allowed to say it. I mean, yeah. it, it is not yet illegal. You know, they, they will not yet put you in jail, I don't think, well, uh, for, for saying things that the left doesn't like or saying something, you know, hateful. So far, so far, I don't think they've arrested anybody. Have they? Uh, recently, they did throw that guy who was um, a Planned Parenthood protester who oh. didn't go like actually anywhere near. <laughs> but OK, but here's the thing, though. This is the BBC, right? Mm -hmm. They put people in jail routinely for hate yeah, speech. You could do. post some nasty thing on Facebook that says, I hate my neighbor because he smells and he's a terrible person and I don't like him. And they'll have the Bobby showing up to your door, knocking on it and hauling you off in cuffs <laughs> because you said something mean on Facebook. I mean, it's not a country that we want to take any advice from when it comes to that sort of thing. No. That uh, is that is a very good point. The United States is one of the only countries that has the freedom of speech in the Constitution. The United Kingdom doesn't, and many of the European countries don't. And we need to, uh, you know, to preserve that as much as we can. And even if it means defending so-called "quote unquote" aid speech, that that that's necessary because yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Hundred percent. Um, I mean, that's what's that's what's so depressing about that about polling is that millennials and Gen Z would rewrite the Constitution today. We wouldn't have freedom of speech at all. It would only be speech that doesn't offend them. How you well, and, you know, and, and and with a sliding scale that you can't actually ever define, with the result of that people are just muzzled. And with the you know the laws that Germany has, um, and they're they're psycho over there. I don't know what's wrong with that country, but uh, they have a policy with Twitter where Twitter will send you a notification if you have said something that runs afoul of German language policing, <laughs> language laws, and you will get a notification from Twitter that says this post is in violation of German authority, blah, blah, blah. You don't have to take it down, but in order to be viewed in Germany, you have to take it down. Just don't take it down. <laughs> yeah. Germany sucks. They don't deserve to see your posts. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the only way to protect free speech is to actually fight for it and to take risks. And uh, we do that on this podcast. We do that as an organization at the Heartland Institute. We're all about freedom, uh, preserving as much individual liberty as we can, free markets, less government. Um, and so these free speech topics kind of get kind of get under our skin before uh, we're not. Hey, no, we still have a couple of minutes. Andy, you don't have to play the music yet. A little too early for music. So, uh, Chris, I'm going to have to make you summarize your piece in the American Thinker, California reparations. And we're going to have to come back to this, I'm sure, because it's mm. not a topic that's going to go away. But California reparations, a blueprint for America. Quickly, with the time we have left, what's going on in California and how likely is it that that's going to spread around the United States or if not become a national thing? It's OK. So in California, they have a California reparations task force. That's not to be confused with the same thing that's going on in San Francisco. This would be across California. And what they're doing and they are moving forward with this at lightning speed is that they are on the path to uh, providing anyone who who uh, is uh, who 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 identifies as black for the past 12 years 
living in California would be eligible for a $5 million payment plus free tuition, plus free housing, plus all their debt would be forgiven. Just think about how crazy that is. So if you're a multi-million dollar athlete like Stephon Curry, you're going to get a $5 million payment just because even though California was never a slave state, even though all these people had nothing to do with slavery on both, you know, both sides, whether the people who are going to be paying it or whether people are going to be receiving it. But what's really scary is the fact that this is moving into the national sphere. And like like uh, the chairwoman for the California Reparations Task Force said, this is going to be a national issue in her opinion. And I am bored that it is going to, too, because right in our backyard over in Evanston, Illinois, another, uh, you know, pretty progressive uh, suburb of Chicago that I lived in for a couple of years. They also have a reparations uh, program already in place. It's cropping up all across the country. This, the UBI, it's all about wealthier distribution. It's all about buying votes. And you know what the saddest thing is? It's gonna, not going to make these people uh, any better. It's just going to make them more dependent on government. Yes. Well, Linnea, I'm going to spare you from being canceled by even asking you to comment on that. <laughs> we'll just let, we'll let Chris take all the heat since this is a piece of the American <laughs> thinker. Pretty easy to find in the American thinker, especially today. Uh, so um, uh, check that check that piece out, and I'm sure we'll be revisiting this topic because uh, it's a dangerous one to talk about <laughs> and to and to bring up on a public forum for sure. So that'll do it for the show. We're actually going to end relatively on time. Donald Kendall, the regular host, would be so proud of me. Uh, thank you, everyone, for watching this show live and for all of you participating in the chat. It was very active today. We appreciate that. Love seeing those comments. Um, if you, um, you know, please watch this on YouTube. Hit that like button. Share this with friends. Subscribe to this channel. Tell some friends about it. Um, and if you want to contact the show, you can do so by emailing us at in the tank podcast at gmail.com. You can contact me at Jay Lakely on Twitter. The Heartland Institute's account is at Heartland Inst on Twitter. And always visit heartland.org. Linnea, how can our fans find you? You can find me at Linnea Lucan on Twitter. And um, that's pretty much where I am now. <laughs> good. And she's a good follow, folks. So definitely go over there and do that. Chris Talgo, what do you have to plug today? Well, always go to heartland.org and uh, go and look at all the great stuff that we've got posted there. All right. Well, thanks everyone for watching and listening. And we will talk to you with Donald Kendall next week.